0: Hello, welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Evan Myers. And we are editors of National Affairs. National Affairs, the quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. Aims help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life, rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. This is published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today,
1: we are very excited to be joined by Carter Snead. Carter is professor of law at the Notre Dame Law School And director of the Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame.
0: For our fall 2021 issue, Carter co-authored an essay with Marianne Glendon that made the case for overturning Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision in 1973 that guaranteed a legal right to abortion. They write that, quote, No theory of interpretation, respectful of the text, history, or tradition of the Constitution could have justified the rule or reasoning of Roe. And they urge the court to reject its precedent in the upcoming case, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. By removing itself from the abortion debate, the court can, quote, restore the people's elected representatives, the authority to pursue laws and policies designed to meet the genuine needs of the vulnerable families involved in these often tragic situations. Carter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Certainly. So Carter, we'd like to start off our conversation with where you start in your essay and kind of how you frame your argument. You obviously, in the essay, at different points, go into the moral problems posed by Roe and kind of the court's abortion regime that that created. And talking about how it distorts views of human flourishing and identity, but first, at the very beginning of the essay, you kind of make a more narrow argument focusing more on the legal and constitutional aspects. And I'm just going to read one of your quotes here at the beginning. "Quote: Regardless of anyone's views of abortion itself, basic fidelity to the Constitution and the rule of law, as well as the imperative of preserving the court's integrity, weren't overruling the decisions that kind of compose the court's abortion rulings." And then you also make a point about self-government, saying that Roe undermines the ability of Americans to govern themselves. And crucial domains of their life. So you know rather than just focusing on the moral things, which I think is what a lot of people debate in society today, you're taking a more narrow view, looking at the legal constitutional problems posed for that decision. Tell us a little bit about why you decided to frame it that way, you and uh, Marianne Glendon, and what you were trying to achieve with that argument.
2: Yeah, thanks for, for asking the question. and Thanks for having me on. So the short answer, the short and sort of most direct answer for why it is that Marianne and I focused on the legal dimensions of this question first and foremost was because the essay itself is adapted from an amicus brief that we filed in the Supreme Court. So for your listeners who don't know, when the Supreme Court hears oral arguments or when they grant cert, that is when they accept the petition of parties to hear their case at the Supreme Court, and for most cases, there is a narrow exception to this, but for most cases, our Supreme Court of the United States has discretionary authority to accept or reject the petitions to hear cases in almost every case. And as a result, they don't hear That many cases each year, I think it's less than 100 cases a year that they hear out of the tens of thousands of cases that bubble up in the federal courts and in the state courts that present sort of federal or constitutional questions that the court would have the competence to hear. So our brief is an advocacy document, right? And the audience of our document is the Supreme Court itself and the justices of the Supreme Court. And so one would hope that arguments that would persuade Supreme Court justices are arguments rooted in the proper interpretation of the Constitution, how it applies to the questions presented, as well as the prudential doctrines that relate to issues like judicial integrity. And I'm thinking in particular of the the doctrine of stare decisis, which is a common law doctrine that counsels courts of last resort to consider the practical consequences of of overturning prior wrongly decided precedent. It doesn't require them to sustain bad precedent, but it it invites them To think about the practical consequences of doing so, one of those consequences relates to the integrity of the court. Other consequences are more practical in terms of the administration and operation of the jurisprudence itself. And we argue that not only does the right understanding of the Constitution warrant overturning Roe and Casey because they're such badly reasoned, really notoriously badly reasoned cases, and are such a miscarriage of the judge justices' responsibility of interpreting the law rather than making the law, and also the doctrine of stare decisis also counsels in favor of dismantling the abortion jurisprudence, because all of the factors that justices are invited to consider point in the direction of, of doing precisely that.
1: Yeah, Carter, I was wondering if we could build on that a little bit more. In addition to sort of this narrow argument, you do get into sort of some of the overall legal flaws with the Roe decision, and, and, and you especially note several aspects of Justice Harry Blackmun's opinion with respect to finding a right to privacy in the 14th Amendment's due process clause, and that, that right to privacy would cover something like abortion. And then in addition to that, sort of almost out of, you know, pure cloth, creating a trimester framework that permits different levels of state regulation. Could you kind of explain how you see the abortion question in a legal framework and, and, and how you see the abortion regime that we have in the United States today, is sort of the legal basis of it and why it might not be as strong of a legal basis as, as some listeners might suspect?
2: Sure. No, it's a great question. And it's important, again, for your listeners to understand, and, and as they interpret the kind of public debate over this and public discourse, what you notice is that there's very little effort on the part of defenders of Roe and Casey to defend those decisions. Planned Parenthood versus Casey is the, is the decision in 1992 that purported to reaffirm what it described as the core holding of Roe v. Wade, although it made dramatic changes to the jurisprudence, which we can talk about if you want to. But the two cases that govern where really Planned Parenthood versus Casey is the fundamental source of authority governing abortion law in America. It's entirely a creature of Supreme Court jurisprudence. And it, it purported to reaffirm, albeit refining the core holding and application of Roe v. Wade. But what I was going to say, though, is that when you hear people defending Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, you very rarely hear them defend it on the grounds of constitutional interpretation. that somehow a fair and, and rigorous interpretation of the Constitution itself yields the conclusion that there's a right to abortion. Mostly the arguments center either on simply policy arguments about abortion is important for women's freedom, abortion is important for equality. These are the kind of arguments that you hear, but those aren't arguments about interpretation of the constitution. They're really arguments if you're try to if you try to translate those arguments into legally efficacious terms, those are really arguments about stare decisis and the consequences of undoing these decisions, the practical consequences of undoing these decisions. So the first thing to understand here is that Roe and Casey, and you get very little pushback on this among most people, really were aggressive construction, sort of inventions, projections onto the constitutional text, the policy preferences of seven justices in Roe and then only five justices in Casey, the invention of a right to abortion that emerged from, again, a very open-ended and untethered approach to constitutional construction which is called substantive due process, where courts read into the procedural language. And the procedural language they point to is the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, which says no person shall be deprived of life or liberty or property without due process of law, which on its face is obviously just a procedural protection for fair and orderly and due process before the government deprives you of particular goods. They read into that language certain kinds of substantive rights that are not written or mentioned in the Constitution, And then they invoke those rights against state action and overturn state action that contravene those rights. And so, as you can immediately see, that's an unbelievably controversial thing for the court to do, especially since the court is meant to be a counter-majoritarian body that isn't political, whose job is pretty narrowly confined to reading and interpreting texts, whether it be the Constitution or federal statutes. This is a kind of invention. This is a kind of legislation. And that's what happened in Roe. The court really and, and it was kind of breathtaking at the time and if you read the the commentary at the time even among very liberal and progressive commentators people were shocked even Ruth Bader Ginsburg was shocked by roe v Wade she said in in several interviews it in one sort of felt swoop eliminated the laws of abortion in every state in the United States and replaced it with a pure invention of the Supreme Court and not just an argument that there was a, an unenumerated right to privacy which is itself a controversial proposition but then doubling down on that controversy is that, and that right to privacy includes the right to abortion. Now, it's important to remember, always to remind ourselves what the court is supposed to be doing when it says these things. It's supposed to be reading the Constitution and interpreting it. And it really, what comes into sharp relief is how field of the Constitution's text, history, and tradition they went when they made that, that invention. Because in 1868, when the 14th Amendment was ratified, the Due Process Clause itself Abortion was illegal everywhere in the United States. It was specifically codified as illegal in 30 of 37 states, and it was a common law crime since the founding. And in England, as scholarship like Joseph Delapena and John Keown have shown, despite, by the way, very very corrupt efforts by certain scholars to claim otherwise, there was a famous historian's brief filed in a couple of the Supreme Court cases. But but they were relying on and echoing the. Discredited claims of a law review article that Justice Blackmun relied on six times in Roe v. Wade, written by Cyril Means, who was counsel to NARAL, who, who just basically invented a false theory of history about the right to abortion and common law in American history. And then Blackmun just sort of re, regurgitated it in, in the opinion. And again, your listeners should know that when courts, when appellate courts like the Supreme Court make definitive factual claims, whether they're claims about sociology or history or science or even just the basic facts of the case, they do so usually relying on a trial court record where there's an evidentiary hearing that tests factual disputes with the adversarial process. You have witnesses, contending witnesses. You have a trier of fact, usually a jury who decides who is right, who is wrong, what happened, what didn't happen. If there's a scientific question, you have experts. If there's a historical question, you have experts. There was none of that in Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade was decided on the papers. Straight from the district court, there was no fact finding at all. So everything that's said in Roe about the history of abortion, about the sociology of pregnancy and and, and contraception and everything else, all of that is is entirely a creature of Justice Blackman's own speculation, rank speculation. So anyway, the long answer, short, Roe and Casey are very poor examples of of constitutional interpretation. They really aren't interpretation; they're their invention using the procedural text of the Due Process Clause taking it out of its historical context, and then just reading into it their own policy preferences.
0: So, Carter, yeah, we, we've already talked about Casey and how that kind of changed the court's abortion jurisprudence. But let's kind of dig into that a little bit more. You've already alluded to this, but kind of in the piece, you write that it was a very kind of bizarre, curious decision because it overruled Roe nearly every aspect, but it also kind of affirmed the essential holding of Roe. And I'm just going to read this quote, too, from the piece that I thought was pretty striking. You write, quote, through Casey, the court created an insuperable right to choose abortion prior to fetal viability. This right, which Justice just claim was implied in the Constitution's text, appears stronger and more inviolable than any right the Constitution explicitly preserves. So again, it's kind of finding a right that's not written explicitly and making it one of the strongest rights in the Constitution. Now, talk a little bit about the impact of Casey and how that affects the court's abortion jurisprudence.
2: Yeah, so Casey is a very strange decision. And there's a guy named Mike Paulson, who's a law professor at the University of St. Thomas, previously at the University of Minnesota, one of the most esteemed constitutional scholars in the country. He has argued, and I think persuasively, that Casey's actually worse than Roe. Casey's worse than Roe because Roe, you know, so what Justice Blackmun does in Roe is he invents a kind of right to abortion and then he invents a trimester framework and it nests it all in the good of privacy and creates what lawyers call a fundamental right, which is almost impossible to overcome. But at least, there's a sort of opportunity for the court for the state to say that it's advancing a compelling interest through the least restrictive means in that case you can still survive a you know a challenge to to the encumbrance of a fundamental right Casey kind of goes even further and Casey says first of all it says you know remember all that stuff we said about privacy that's not the right good the right good is Liberty and you remember how we said that there was a fundamental right to abortion well no in fact we're going to call it a protected Liberty interest which usually is a pretty permissive standard that allows states to regulate pretty robustly. And then they said, and by the way, you remember that trimester framework where we said that in the first trimester, there can be no rent limits. In the second trimester, there can be no limits in the name of the unborn child, but only for purposes of advancing maternal health. And in the third trimester, you can, you can restrict abortion, but you always have to have an exception for the health of the mother, which includes any aspect of her well-being as determined by the abortionist, You know, which makes our law, and this is to Evan's question, Arguably the most permissive abortion regime in the world. I mean, we're one of only a handful of countries, and this is where Marianne Glendon's wonderful comparative legal expertise comes in and feeds into the, the content of our of our piece. You know, that we we're only of a handful of countries in the world that allow abortion after 20 weeks gestation. There can basically be no restriction on abortion as such, qua abortion, throughout nine months of pregnancy because of this health exception. So in Casey, the court says, well, we're going to scrap most of that. And frankly, we're not going to. Embrace the reasoning of Roe because it was so dubious. What we're going to do is we're going to reaffirm what we define as the core holding of Roe. We're going to say the core holding of Roe is that prior to viability, there can be no undue restriction on abortion, meaning the state cannot, before viability, deprive a woman of the ultimate authority to get an abortion. And then after viability, you can restrict abortion, but you still have to have that health exception that we articulated in Roe v. Wade and its companion case, Doe v. Bolton, which basically is an exception that swallows the rule. But the most chilling and strange thing about Casey is that Casey resituates the normative framework into liberty and then makes claims that I, I, I criticize and Marianne and I criticize pretty intensively in our piece, basically saying that the heart of human flourishing is to define your own concept of the universe, to, to sort of blaze your own pathway forward. And any encumbrance of that of that freedom is to be defended, even with reference to the substantive due process principles that were articulated in Roe. So there has to be a right to abortion, according to the, the bare five to four majority, because the burdens on a woman are so significant on her defining and pursuing her future as she sees fit, and then counterbalance against the state's very minimal interests, according to the court in nascent human life, uh, in utero human life, the unborn child, which the court still says in Casey, as it did in Roe, that the state is forbidden to protect as a person, right? Let me just pause a second on that. This is really important for your audience to understand the court says in Roe and Casey and their abortion jurisprudence more generally that our constitution itself forbids states and the political branches from extending even basic minimal protections to unborn children and forbids states from treating children as if they were equal human beings. Okay. And that's a different point than saying whether the word person in the 14th Amendment means unborn children. That's a separate question. What I'm saying is something more radical, namely they're claiming that our constitution itself puts beyond the boundaries of the moral and legal community unborn children entirely and the states are not permitted to act otherwise that's a radical thing like again even if one is conflicted on the question of abortion and the, as many americans are mm-hmm. the idea that our nation's founding document would tell us that we cannot we're forbidden from protecting unborn children even in basic ways should be shocking, right? People should say, and then to, to Evan and your earlier question, it removes from the political sphere any possibility of conversation, deliberation in the political right. branches and perhaps compromise in the way that our, and again, this is drawing upon Marianne's expertise, our neighbors around the world have been able to do allowed to do forever. I mean, Western Europe is far more restrictive on abortion than we are, and they also don't have this extraordinary. Culture of being at each other's throat on the political question of abortion because they're actually allowed to have the conversation. Whereas in the United States, we're not allowed to have the conversation. The Supreme Court has answered it for us. And in Casey, the court even went, and this is chilling, said, You know, we've settled this question. Now it's time for you pro life people, you pro choice people, you need to all go home now because we've settled this question. And it's essential that we affirm the core holding of Roe v. Wade if the court is going to be viewed as having integrity, which is amazing to say that when a court is not acting as a court, it preserves its integrity. When a court affirms what is one of the most lawless and dubious series of precedents, even in the minds of intellectually honest pro-choice people, that sustaining those is essential to their integrity. It's Orwellian, in my view.
1: Yeah, You mentioned integrity, and, and you said the term stare decisis several times earlier in the pod. I wanted to come back to that. I think for a lot of listeners, they might have heard of stare decisis for but not be entirely sure about what it is and what it's supposed to do, properly speaking, sort of what are some of the considerations around stare decisis, especially as we head into this upcoming case, this Dobbs case. So could you kind of explain what stare decisis is, how to think about it, and why you think that actually it is because of stare decisis in a certain sense, right, that the court should return Roe v. Wade in case
2: and so, your listeners will probably recall that basically every single Supreme Court confirmation hearing for every every nominated person nominated to be a justice in our lifetime have been interrogated intensively about the principle of stare decisis, and every single one, left and right, Democrat appointees, Republican, stare decisis is the big question. And 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 the reason they're asking this question is precisely because they're trying to tease out how the the nominee will think about Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. That's the whole ball game. That's when people are talking about stare decisis, they're talking about abortion. Okay, and a big piece of the of the Casey decision rested on a very unpersuasive and speculative and conclusory discussion of stare decisis. The court says, "Well, stare decisis is about stability and transparency and reliability in a judicial system of precedence generally, right?" and for those goods, in the name of those goods, we counsel judges and justices to think carefully before they undo prior precedents, and to ask the following questions before they do so: Is is the prior precedent was it badly reasoned? Has it proven to be unworkable? Meaning, as an operational standard for courts and and, and the political branches to apply, does it does it work? Does it not work? Has it caused what Brett Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh, has called real world bad consequences, both in the context of the jurisprudence? But also in the context of more basic effects. And then finally, and this is the one, this is the one consideration that you hear most about is have there has there over time built up what they call reliance interests on these prior precedents? Have people built their lives in reliance on the availability of the rules that were articulated in this in this challenge precedent? And in Casey, the court says all of those factors, and again, if you read it, it's not very persuasive. There's not a lot of authority. It's mostly Hand waving, They say, well, you know, Roe hasn't really been eroded. It's been workable. It's, it's proven to be workable. It hasn't had many bad practical consequences. And women have built their lives around the availability of abortion. Their free and equal standing in the community as equal citizens depends on the right to abortion so that they can unburden themselves from burdens that are unequally distributed between women and men when pregnancy occurs, right? That the woman is obviously uniquely and distinctively burdened in those ways in a way that a man is not. And so it's necessary for her to have recourse to abortion in the event of contraceptive failure or, God forbid, rape or incest or something like that. But again, in, in the court's decision, it doesn't cite any social science data. It certainly doesn't cite any social science or legal developments, which obviously contributed to this, the flourishing of women anti discrimination laws, cultural changes, practices, employment practices. A wide array of transformative changes we should all embrace and celebrate that led women to have equal standing or more equal standing in our country, and they just sort of say conclusively, abortion is necessary to this to this flourishing. Well, ignoring the fact that there are countries around the world with more restrictive abortion policies, in some cases completely restrictive abortion policies, where women's flourishing has proceeded apace, and how even things like maternal mortality are better than they are there than they are here. And I'm thinking, just for example, of Ireland, prior to its recent legalization of abortion, women's flourishing was was not substandard measured against the United States, Chile, there are other examples around the world. So it's just a kind of hand-waving. And by the way, reliance interests, jurisprudentially, have never, ever been applied to the reproductive context. They're always about contract interests. They're about settled interests that will be disrupted with subsequent legal decision-making. Whereas even the court in Casey said if abortion is restricted, people can immediately take cognizance of that and structure their decisions accordingly, right? In terms of contraception or or, or whatever, you know what I mean? To avoid pregnancy. And so in any event, that, that, that's the sort of broader framework for stare decisis. And what we argue in the piece is that Casey was completely misguided and wrongheaded on that question. And in fact, if you apply all of those factors, they point in the direction of overturning Roe and Casey. First of all, Obviously, they're notoriously badly decided for reasons that we've already talked about. Secondly, they have been proven completely unworkable. In fact, right now, we don't even know what the rule is. So there's a, you know, we've had a series of decisions subsequent to Casey that have kind of scrambled the question of what is, in fact, the rule that state legislatures have to follow when they craft abortion restrictions. And the only solution to that conundrum is to pass a law and then spend two years defending it in the courts and then see what the Supreme Court says if they take cert. And that's not a way, That's not doesn't promote stability or predictability or transparency. As Justice Thomas said, there aren't five justices on the court right now who could even agree with one another about what Casey says or requires. So it's completely unworkable from the perspective of a precedent that binds the political branches. It has caused massive real world consequences. Obviously, the other areas of jurisprudence have been corrupted when the topic is abortion. The, the settled rules give way and they're changed. And this is, true across a variety of contexts that we sketch out in the in the piece. And then of course, the real world consequences, this is getting into the, the normative dimension of this, the death toll since Roe v. Wade of unborn children, especially among poor and minority children, unborn children and families is 62 million, right? think about that for a minute. That's a staggering number, no matter what, again, no matter what your view on what the policy of abortion should be, that number should make you pause. And the idea that we have the most permissive regime in the world, arguably, because of this lawless precedent set of precedents, should also give one pause. Again, people who are pro-choice should, I think, be in favor of overturning Roe and Casey so we can return this question to the political branches where we can actually talk to each other about it. And then finally, the reliance question. Again, there's a wonderful amicus brief filed by a woman named Erica Bakiaki and Teresa Collette and Helen Alvarez on behalf of 240 professional women. And I think Erica Bakiaki has published in National Affairs sure. on these points before as well, as as is cross-referenced in our piece, that in fact, women's flourishing has proceeded at pace as abortion rates have dropped. And all social science evidence points to the proposition that abortion is not necessary for women's success and flourishing. And moreover, the widespread access to abortion and the constitutional right to abortion has had deleterious effects on women's flourishing because it leads to a greater rate of abandonment by men who walk away from women and shirk their responsibilities in a shameful way on the grounds that since the woman has unilateral and sole authority to make her own mind up, then he has no role and he therefore has no obligation. And so the consequence, so every single factor of stare decisis actually points in the direction of overturning Roe and Casey in our judgment.
0: All right, Carter, so we're going to start to wind down here, but a couple last questions. In terms of thinking about how critics of your argument here, how they might respond to you You've already mentioned the idea that some people think overturning Roe would undermine the court's integrity. And you've sort of argued against that already. But also the idea that abortion is already such a divisive issue in our culture and that overturning Roe would make it even more divisive. How do you respond to that argument from people who, who worry about overturning Roe?
2: Yeah, I think there's no way to avoid the proposition that disputes over abortion are divisive. They implicate fundamental goods that people care very much about and disagree very strongly about. I mean Reproductive autonomy and freedom and the dignity of women on the one side versus the good of defending intrinsic equal dignity of all human beings born and unborn on the other, as well as promoting the integrity of the medical profession and their respect for life more generally on the other. These are very, very deeply charged topics, and people feel very strongly about them. and That's true everywhere. But if you think about polarization and you think about and just compare the health of our discourse on this question to that in other countries. And what you find is those countries, they are actually able to have a conversation with each other and understand one another fully and even if and respect each other, even if they disagree, and come to some kind of arrangement where they can reach a way to address this question that is that even the losers feel like they've been heard and have had an opportunity to participate in. It. And we have the added benefit of federalism in this country, where we can have different states with different cultures, different legal laws and different cultural norms. To pursue different results and different frameworks. I mean, Alabama and Indiana and Ohio and South Dakota are going to look different than Illinois and California and New York, right? And that's okay. It's okay that they they treat these matters. Let me put it a little bit more broadly. It's okay that they disagree and take different approaches to vex normative questions. Now, can you live with 50 different solutions to fundamental questions involving the intrinsic equal dignity of human life. That's something we're gonna to have to debate amongst ourselves if we are have the opportunity to debate amongst ourselves. But I think the fact that the court has held on to this for so long has actually supercharged the debate and made it even more polarizing, where every single question about the presidency and, and about the Senate, really, for those of us who think and care and work on these questions of abortion, really it's for it's forefront in our mind. And these are all proxy battles, and it precludes the possibility of being able. To to have, and we have very strange coalitions in our politics. I mean, there are a lot of people who would be Democrats, but for the abortion issue. And there might be people who would be Republicans, but for the abortion, like it's hard to know, right? Our politics has been bent and corrupted by this. And I think it could only be healthy, more healthy to be able to have more conversation and and greater freedom to govern ourselves. I believe in the American people that we can do that, that we can actually have conversations amongst ourselves and, and and settle our differences in a peaceful way through the political process, rather than fighting a proxy battle about things that aren't really what we're talking about, like stare decisis and the meaning of the 14th Amendment. Neither one of those things are really what we're talking about. Yeah. What we're talking about is a normative disagreement about abortion and what should we do? What kind of people are we? What do we owe to each other? And I think that's an argument you got to have in the political sphere. It can't be a proxy fight in the courts.
1: Yeah. Well, Carter, Thanks so much. I think we have one final question for you. And just so listeners know, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization is coming up in December. It's a case that could potentially overturn overturn Casey, overturn Roe v. Wade. So I just wanted to ask, do you have any predictions about how the court might rule in that case?
2: Absolutely. And I mean, how do you think that ruling could affect abortion laws in, in our society's division more generally? Yeah, let me, I'm very confident in my prediction. And let me tell you why. First of all, Dobbs, what Dobbs did is it granted cert, meaning it agreed to answer a, a very narrow question? And the question that it agreed to answer is whether or not Mississippi's 15-week ban on abortion is constitutional. Even more broadly, the court said, are any bans on abortion prior to viability constitutional? That's basically the question that they're asking. Now, Planned Parenthood versus Casey could not be clearer. Planned Parenthood versus Casey says any ban on abortion prior to viability is unconstitutional. I mean, undue burden is something far short of a ban. A ban is de facto an undue burden, right? And it makes a distinction between pre and post viability. And so it's prior to viability, there's one rule, no undue burden. After viability, there's another rule. You can restrict abortion so long as you include a health of the mother exception and a life of the mother exception. This is a pre-viability abortion ban. Nobody's disputing that, which means that on its face, this violates Casey. There's no way around it. So the court has two choices, really only two choices. One choice is to simply affirm Roe and Casey and say, for whatever reason, stare decisis, or even say, we think the due process clause includes a right to abortion. We're just going to tell you we're, we're sustaining the whole thing and we're moving ahead and the law has to be struck down. That's option one. Option two is to affirm the law is constitutional, but to do that with intellectual honesty and integrity, you have to dismantle Roe and Casey because otherwise the only other possibility, which is not what stare decisis requires, is to reinvent the right to abortion, to reframe the rule and say, okay, when we said viability, we didn't mean viability. We meant something, we meant maybe 15 weeks or maybe 12 weeks. And that is, that's not reaffirming Roe and Casey. That's reinventing Roe and Casey. And as Chief Justice Roberts has said in his own, in Citizens United, his concurring opinion, stare decisis is not a doctrine of transformation. It's a doctrine of preservation. It doesn't serve the goods of stability and transparency and everything else to reinvent and re theorize a right. That was disputed to begin with and try to reground it in the constitution. I don't think there's an app. Now, maybe with a different court, there would be an appetite to do that. I think there are six justices on the court right now who understand, first of all, I think there are nine justices who understand that Roe v. Wade is in, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey is bad constitutional interpretation, has nothing to do with the text history tradition. I think if you were to give them all lie detector tests, all nine of them would, would agree to that proposition, or they would articulate an approach to judicial, a constitutional interpretation which has nothing to do with the text, history, tradition of the Constitution, which basically says judges or legislators, maybe they would do that. Those are the two choices. Right. I think there are six justices on the court right now. Again, I'm speculating. I have no idea what any of these justices think. I've not talked to any of them about it. I I would not ever talk to them about it. Obviously, that would not be appropriate. What I'm saying is I don't think there are six justices who have any appetite at all to reinvent the phony right to abortion, to keep the authority at the court to resolve this question. Because even if they were to say, because A, it's it wouldn't be intellectually honest, and I think they're all they're all all six of them, all nine of the justices have wonderful integrity, and they're obviously brilliant people. But these six justices, because of what we know about how they interpret the Constitution, based on publicly available information, we know that they probably don't have an appetite to reinvent the right to abortion. And what they've said about, by the way, also about stare decisis. Chief Justice Roberts himself said, "Judges and justices cannot compare the incommensurable goods of reproductive aut- autonomy and self determination." Versus the prenatal right to life. He said, that's not within the competence of judges to do. He wrote that in his concurrence in June medical services, but that you'd have to do that to reconfigure the right to abortion. And I don't think even he would want to do that. I mean, he's a person of great integrity and intellectual honesty. I don't think he would do that either. So you've got six, six justices who I don't think would want to reinvent the right to abortion for the sake of preserving Roe and Casey, because first of all, it doesn't buy them anything at all. If they say, okay, 15 weeks is okay, we're not going to tell you what's okay or not okay. We'll just say 15 weeks is okay, because that's this case of controversy. They're dealing with a six-week ban already out of Texas, Yeah, right? They're going to deal with a ban at conception later on. This issue is not going away. They're going to be what Justice White called the sort of de facto or ad hoc you know, medical board for abortion forever until they finally release us from these shackles and give us the responsibility and obligation and privilege of governing ourselves on this question. So I think I think it'll be six to three, Roe and Casey will, will no longer be the law of the land as early as the end of June. And when that happens, people like me, people who care about unborn children and moms and babies will and must step up and take care of those moms and babies and families who will need care and, and concern and protection, both in the political context, the legal context, the nonprofit context, to come forward and, and to care for those moms and babies and children and families the way you should care for a mother and a child in a crisis. okay? So we don't simply say, aha, you have to have this baby and now we're walking away from you. That's not how it works. These moms and babies and families need our help and our concern, and we need to rush to their aid the moment we're allowed to do it through the political branches and through our own private actions.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good place to end on Carter. Thanks so much. This was fascinating. A great discussion of the court's abortion rulings and what you would think might happen in the future. It's really wonderful. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: You bet. If you'd like to read Carter's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers retain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.